Good morning. Hi, I'm Allie Bachman. My husband Sam and I have been attending Crosspoint for a little over a year now. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49 in the CSB translation. Let's hear God's word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds is its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another for the moon, and another for the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to that passage. That's where we'll be this morning. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for believers in and followers of Jesus. We don't put Easter in the rearview mirror after last week and forget about the resurrection, but we live in light of it. We live in response to its true reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes not only our todays, but our tomorrows. And by God's grace, we'll end up spending a couple more Sundays here in chapter 15 talking at length about the resurrection. In a sense, in today's passage, Paul is looking backward and forward. He's looking back at, his recent, at, the, at the recent resurrection of Jesus Christ about 20 years prior to him writing this letter to the Corinthians. And then he's pointing the Corinthians forward to what their resurrection, the resurrection body, will look like one day. And we do the same today. We look back at the resurrection of Jesus Christ a little bit longer than 20 years ago. And we also look forward to what our resurrection will be like, what our bodies will be like, the eternal bodies that we will worship in and dwell with our hero Jesus for all eternity. It's easy in our world to get fixated on the here and now. Present day life, making sure the wheels stay on the bus, the plates keep spinning, any other metaphor you want to use. But by God's grace this morning, we get the opportunity to pause, to pause, to consider eternity, to lift our eyes to the life that will come for those whose faith and trust is wholeheartedly in Jesus, the one who died and rose again for us. Last week, we looked at verses 12 through 34, 
and toward the end of that section that Paul wrote, remember, it's just one flowing letter. It wasn't broken down by chapters and verses originally, so it's one flowing letter. And so immediately prior to today's section, Paul writes, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. So there was a pocket of people in the Corinthian church that had started to question whether believers would be resurrected after their death. And so as a result, they started to incorrectly think, well, if there's no resurrection, if this life is it, let's eat and drink, let's get drunk, let's live for today because there is no tomorrow. Tomorrow we we die. What's the big deal? No eternal life. To which Paul rebukes then, come to your senses and stop sinning. Wake up to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead, and so there is an eternity. This life is not it, and eternal life is given only to those who've repented of their sin and believed in Jesus. If you've rejected Jesus in this life, then eternal life is not yours, but eternal death. If in this life you sowed seeds of of rebellion and rejection, rejection toward Jesus, the risen King of Kings, then you reap rejection in judgment. Loved ones, don't let that be you. Today is the day of your salvation. Trust in Jesus today. His his love is too good for you to just set aside and dismiss. Paul continues in verse 35, addressing questions that are coming from this group of people in the church who are dismissing the idea of of resurrection. Verse 35, but someone someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? The Greeks at the time would have taught that the soul is good, but the body, the physical body, is corrupt. It's bad. And so they wrongly assumed it was just the soul that lived on forever, but not the physical body as well. According to one scholar, they thought that the life that follows earthly death was a dark, colorless, shadowy existence compared to the fullness of our experience and our bodies prior to death. And so from that wrong thinking, this group is asking Paul, okay, so how are the dead raised, Paul? What kind of body will they have in the future? Verse 36, you fool. Strong language used with the intent to get them to come to their senses, to wake up spiritually so they don't die apart from faith in Christ. You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow... You're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But, but God it gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Paul is going to walk through a variety of metaphors from creation to help us better understand what the resurrection body will be like. And he begins with a picture from the world of farming saying that our earthly bodies are like seeds. And so when you think of seeds, what grows up out of what is buried looks different than what went into the ground. There's some similarities and continuity, of course, but at the same time, there is transformation, to say the least. A wheat seed grows into the ground, and from it a stalk grows up. In the coming weeks, this is what we're going to see all around us physically. Farmers sowing seed into the ground, even if they're angry at their computer, they're going to get it in the ground, they're going to bury it, and yet from it will grow new life. What dies in the ground is nothing like what appears above ground. And this isn't just crops, but think an acorn into an oak tree, a bulb into tulips or lilies. And so Paul is saying we shouldn't expect our eternal bodies to look 
just like they do now. Resurrected life will look different than earthly life. A transformation will have taken place. Praise God that it will, right? Paul's saying that life forming out of death, this isn't a man-made concept. This isn't a foreign, silly idea. It's all around us. It's in creation. It's in the natural world, the, the world the Lord spoke into existence. It was all around the Corinthians. It's all around us. The Corinthians were prone to rely upon worldly philosophy of the day and yet in doing so reject God's wisdom in the gospel saying well that's just foolish but here Paul's lovingly rebuking saying no you're a fool for not believing the resurrection because images of what Jesus has accomplished through being buried in the ground and then raised to life these pictures are all around us verse 38 again but God gives it a body as he wants into each of the seeds its own body meaning our Creator God is sovereign over our earthly bodies and sovereign over our one-day resurrected ones. According to Psalm 139, our earthly bodies were fearfully and wonderfully made by our God in love, knit together in our mother's womb, and in the same way, the Lord will determine what our resurrected bodies will be like. Notice that our God is a giving God. For the past several weeks, we've We've seen how God gives spiritual gifts to his people. Well, in this way, he is the, he's the same God who gives life in the womb, life in the resurrection, because he's the same God who spoke creation into existence in Genesis and then sent his eternal son to be born of a virgin, die upon a cross for the sin of mankind, rise again on the third day. Romans 4.17 describes our triune God this way, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. We worship a God who is not subject to death, but supreme and sovereign over it. This is why Romans 8 can, can declare to us that, that even death will not be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because if our God is sovereign over death, that means God's people are also following the same way. We are supreme we follow in the same way over death, so death will not be able to separate. Charles Spurgeon said, The righteous are put into their graves all weary and worn, but they will not rise in the same way. They will go there with the furrowed brow, the hollowed cheek, the wrinkled skin. They shall wake up in beauty and glory. Verse 39, Paul continues to use metaphors from creation to explain the resurrection body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There's, there's all these different kinds of bodies in God's creation. Paul's mentioning humans, animals, birds, fish, which point us back to the creation story, Genesis 1, the Lord speaking these into existence. And the list of these also remind us of the differences among them. The bass doesn't look like the bald eagle, which doesn't look like the bear, which doesn't look like the guy named Bob or the lady named Bridget. I didn't take me too long to come up with that, but not all flesh is the same. That's all that Paul's saying, including our resurrected flesh one day. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. One commentator wrote this, there are various kinds of bodies and different levels of splendor for each, so it would be a mistake to think a human body would always have to 
be the same kind of human body with the same level of splendor. Paul is saying, listen, Corinthians, you don't have an adequate category of the splendor that will come. You don't have an adequate description of it. And just because you can't get your little brains around it doesn't diminish the glory that will come. It actually should only increase our hope and expectation. Just because individuals cannot imagine that it's a body that is different than the one we have now does not mean it's not possible. Because we're worshiping, again, an eternal, supernatural, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God. Paul goes on in verse 41 to continue to describe a variety of splendors we see in creation, none of which existed apart from our God's creation-speaking words. There's a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another in from another star in splendor. Each of these created items have their own splendor as well to varying degrees. There's an obvious difference in brightness between the sun and the moon and the stars. A brightness difference even among the stars. The sun itself is roughly 13 billion times brighter than the next brightest star. Our heavenly bodies and earthly bodies each have a level of splendor because the God of all glory created them. But our resurrected bodies one day will be of another level of splendor, unlike we know of now. So knowing that truth, let me remind you and I of this. To those of us who have watched fellow believers walk through debilitating diseases, where you've seen them suffer physically, you sat with them in hospice, you saw the effects of stroke, heart disease, you saw their once healthy body suffer through cancer, Parkinson's, ALS, Alzheimer's, these terrible, terrible diseases that one day will be in the rearview mirror. But if you've seen someone suffer through those and that person trusted in Jesus, the Lord was holding them fast even in the suffering, especially in the suffering. Their suffering is over. Let me remind your heart that they no longer dwell in weak earthly bodies, but they've been raised to eternal life. The splendor of their heavenly bodies is different than what you saw in their life and in their passing. As Spurgeon said, the righteous are put into their grave all weary and worn, but they will not rise in the same way. So grieve well, but don't grieve as if you have no hope. For they are in the presence of the one. They are basking in the glory of the one who saved them by grace alone. Who fixed his love upon them before the foundations of the earth. Who promised that nothing, including suffering, including the effects of this fallen world, including death itself, would separate them from the love of our God. As one author wrote, the resurrection completely swallows up the broadest and deepest effects of the fall of creation in humanity. It completely swallows up, just swallows it up. The broadest and deepest effects that we all experience on a daily basis. Swallowed up. Paul's given pictures from creation and from these pictures, verses 42 through 44. So 
so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Paul is contrasting between our present bodies and our future resurrection ones to help us see the difference. And in, and each, and in each contrast, the column of the resurrection body, it wins every single time. Imagine the classic before and after pictures of weight loss. The before picture, it's black and white. It's nearly a mugshot. They're hunched over. They hate life. There is no smile. Their hair is disheveled if they have hair. It's terrible, terrible lighting. If they're white, they're pale as a ghost. I'm just like, I just hate it. The after, the after is full on color. Standing tall, smiling big, hair is looking on point. If they're white, they're tan now. <laughs> it's incredible, incredible lighting. They're loving life. This is the stark contrast that Paul wants us to see between our earthly bodies and one day resurrection bodies. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Our bodies now are perishable. They have a shelf life. They're subject to mold. They're subject to illness, strain, aches, let alone death. Our resurrection bodies will be imperishable, eternal, no expiration date, no best used by date, permanent. Following the resurrection of Jesus, whose human body in that tomb, according to Psalm 16.10 and Acts 2.31, did not see decay. The Father did not abandon the Son in the tomb, and the faithful Son's human body did not see decay or corruption. He was raised within the, re raised within the weekend, raised in incorruption. So, one day, no, no more doctor visits. The entire medical community, whoosh, mortician, sorry, you're out of, you're out of work. Permanent, permanent bodies to dwell in the glory of the one who has given them permanent, eternal bodies, to enjoy him, to enjoy one another as the family of God for all eternity. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Our bodies now are fleshly, meaning we are born with the sin nature and that sinful flesh is not fully conquered this side of heaven. We most certainly make progress, and we should be making progress in killing sin for its power was killed upon that cross in the tomb, but we most certainly won't reach perfection here in these bodies. Paul says in Romans 7.19, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. And if we're honest, we've all been there with him, going, why am I doing dishonorable things? And why am I failing to do honorable things? Why is my heart still prone to wander sometimes? It's because we've been sown in dishonor. We still have a flesh prone to sin and stray from the Lord's good commands. Paul goes on in, verse, in, in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And if it ended there, that'd be terrible. But this is Holy Spirit-inspired writing. And Paul declares the rescuer has come, and he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so while in these earthly bodies we struggle against sin, we also have the power of, of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, so we're no longer a slave to sin. 
And in the resurrection, we will be raised in glory and dishonor will be no more once and for all. Romans 6, 4 and 5, Therefore, we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in the likeness of His death, we will most certainly also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is one thing, that, that truth is what we declare when we go public with our faith in baptism. I'll fill it next week as well. There'll be more baptisms. Again, not because I'm going on sabbatical, but because the Spirit is at work. So respond to that Spirit. Respond. Let's, let's let the Father who's doing the work get the glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. We've all experienced weakness before. These I can't do this on my own moments. Even if you're an absolute beast in the weight room, your PR is still limited. It is. I hate to tell you. It is. On our mission trip this last month, we, we installed this new water cistern at the school and dig a, dug, dug a five-by-five square hole, five-and-a-half-foot deep. I told, I, told one of my, I told Micah there when we were down there in the hole sweating, I thought, I told my wife, I'm more likely to die of a heart attack on this than of like random violence, right? Because I'm just, I felt weak. Whether it's digging, mixing concrete, lifting concrete, Maybe I was the only one, but I don't think so. One day we'll be raised in power, marked by His power. Loved ones, in our weakness, the Lord wants us to see how we are born in need of Him. He's calling us to turn toward Him in this life while we have opportunity to to express that in our neediness, that it's not ultimately going to be met through us, but it's going to be met through Him. That in our, I can't do this on my own. We've all had those. Maybe you're smack dab in the middle of one right now. I can't do this on my own. In those moments, we aren't called to dig deeper into our pride, into our self-righteousness, into I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And It's to look up. Look up to the one who rose again. The King of Kings. Not to look inward. You will be perpetually frustrated if you keep going after those dry wells instead of looking to the living water instead of looking to the bread of life. For in our weakness, Scripture tells us His grace is all sufficient. Sown a natural one, raised a spiritual one. Paul's not talking about material and immaterial worlds. He's not saying we're going to be raised as ghosts or spirits because Jesus, who we follow, was not raised as a ghost. Rather, N.T. Wright uses this illustration that Paul's not talking about what our bodies will be composed of, but what they'll be animated by. The difference between natural and spiritual is like the difference between speaking of a ship made of steel or wood on the one hand and a ship driven by steam or wind on the other. So in our resurrection bodies, we'll be completely and utterly driven by and empowered by the Spirit of God. No longer living out of limited earthly resources, but heavenly power and unlimited resources. And yes, we are to be led by the Spirit now. And we have the Spirit now. There are already realities in this life. And also, there are not yet realities yet to come in the resurrection. So as we are led by the Spirit now, it points our eyes forward to the resurrection where it'll be all Spirit, no natural. Verses 45 and 46, So it is written, the first man, 
Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Adam gave us one kind of body, a body that is prone to corruption, dishonor, weakness, and natural. Jesus, the last Adam, gives believers another kind. What was dead because of sin, Jesus makes alive. What was lifeless, Jesus breathes life into. What was drowning in the muck and mire of our sin, Jesus lifts us up, put our feet on a rock, making our feet secure. What was born into sin is now born again in the Spirit. The last Adam is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that did not exist because Jesus is a life-giving God. Notice that Jesus is the last Adam, the final one, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the head. As one author wrote, Jesus perfectly did what Adam could never do and paid the penalty of death for Adam's sin. Our natural bodies are inherited because we belong to Adam. We will inherit our supernatural bodies because now we belong to Jesus. Paul says in verse 45 that Adam became a living being. God created him, just like he created Eve in any human sense. On the other hand, Jesus Christ, the eternal one, who did not come into existence at Christmas time, but has always existed, who was present with the Father, present with the Spirit. When Adam was created, Jesus, as a result, is life-giving. Because even when we, even he, when he willingly laid down his life by his own authority, he's life-giving because he took it back up by his own authority on the third day. And then in verses 47 through 49, the final ones for today, Paul's continuing to contrast Adam and Jesus. Here's Adam, the lesser one, and from that, if it's true of Adam, it's true even to a greater degree for Jesus Christ. How much more is it true of him? The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are, who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been, or just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. From the earth versus from heaven, created from the dust versus creator of the dust and of every human. We spend this life in bodies that reflect our first parents, Adam and Eve. In the life to come, we spend it in bodies that reflect our Savior. And in this life of waiting and preparing and being on a disciple-making mission, this side of eternity, followers of Jesus bear the image of the man of heaven. Bear the image in this verse means to wear apparel or clothing. It's being used figuratively here, suggesting that believers wear the image of Christ on our bodies as we would wear clothing. Brothers and sisters, what are you wearing as a way of life? Are you putting on the old raggedy clothes of Adam, living in sin, living in old creation ruts and routines? What are your actions, your words, your attitudes bearing the image of? Adam or our hero from heaven? Remember the story of the prodigal son coming home repentant, broken, unclean, having made an utter mess of things. And while the pig slop son is still a long way off, the father runs out in joy, in joy, not begrudging, in absolute joy to greet him. The fattened calf is killed 
because the celebration has to take place. The lost has been found. Old garments are tossed aside. The sun now is covered in a new robe, new sandals upon his feet, a new ring for his finger. The sun that had squandered it all and yet came home repentant is given it all. All the Father's is his. Brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us that we've been covered in his robes of righteousness, seen by the Father not in our unrighteousness, but in the holiness of his Son. Romans 8.29 reminds us the God who predestined us is also the God who justified us, is also the God who's conforming us more and more into the image of his Son. Brothers and sisters, whose image are you bearing? Whose clothing are you putting on? The clothing of Christ, the clothing of a citizen of heaven, the clothing of a son or daughter that's been met with lavish and abundant grace? Or are you putting on the clothing of a person who thinks, ah, this earthly life is it. Let's eat, let's drink. Tomorrow we die. Are you putting on clothes like the first parents who believed the lies and began to distrust the goodness and love of the Father's authority, His loving words. We were born in corruption, dishonor, and weakness. And so we were born in desperate need of a hero, a hero that would rescue and redeem and set us free. In the last Adam, Jesus, the Eternal One, is the name of a hero. The storyline of Scripture tells us over and over we can't be our own. We can't in our own strength make ourselves incorruptible or make ourselves honorable or make ourselves strong. But Jesus can. And Jesus does. And Jesus will. See, either you're confessing Jesus as the hero of your life, both in this life and the life to come, or you're confessing that you are your own hero. And if you're doing that, you're reflecting one of two biblical characters. One is the religious Pharisee, the older brother in Luke 15, that's puffed up with self-righteousness and arrogance thinking it's by your obedience that you've worked your way into this status with the Father. And so you're dismissing the grace and the cross. Or you're reflecting that of the prodigal who says, who cares about the Father in heaven? I want to do what I want to do. And you're running and you're rebelling, thinking that you'll find life in some other place. Or the other mindset of a prodigal is saying, I've done too much. I've run too far. I could never come home. Either way, whether you're actively rebelling or actively thinking you can't come home, either way, don't set aside the cross. Don't set aside the Father's grace. To the Pharisee and to the prodigal, repent. Turn toward Jesus, the only one who is life-giving. The Father will meet you on the road in celebration. All of heaven will rejoice at your repentance. Your local church will rejoice at your repentance. As Paul wrote in verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. It's the same truth that Jesus spoke of in John 12 as he's predicting his upcoming death on a cross, his subsequent resurrection. Verses 23 and 26, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies... It produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
Where I am there, my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. Loved ones, who are you confessing as the hero of your life? Who are you serving in this life? The Son of Man came so that you might trust in and follow him. We receive abundant and eternal life through humbling ourselves before him, dying to the idea that we can be our own hero, that we can make ourselves honorable and strong. And instead, when we look to Jesus, the one who through his death, his resurrection, continues to produce fruit and life in those who trust in him. Stephen Um writes this, Jesus the imperishable became perishable that the perishable us might become imperishable. Jesus the powerful one became weak so the weak might become powerful. Jesus who deserved life experienced death so that those who deserve death might experience new life. Jesus, the man of heaven, made himself a son of man, a man of the earth, so that the sons of Adam, the people of the earth, might become people of heaven. If one belongs to Jesus, his or her future supernatural resurrection body is just as certain as his or her present natural body. Christ is in us. We already have the DNA. We are like a seed that will be planted and will sprout to counterintuitive, unexpected New life in the resurrection. Jesus, we praise you that you are life-giving. It's not something you simply did in past chapters. It's what you are presently doing in our lives, what you will do in the future until you return. We praise praise you that you beat sin and death and promise to do the same for all who trust in and follow you. Thank you that you are the man of heaven and took on a body of dust in order that we, a people who are made of dust, might one day take on a heavenly body. Thank you for your living and active word that reminds us that you were not a ghost after your resurrection. You were a real resurrected body. You ate with and enjoyed time with your disciples. You spoke encouragement and exhortation to them. And thank you that you're still doing that with us, Lord, encouraging and exhorting us, dwelling with us in relationship. Teach us to abide in with you as a way of life. We declare that you are the hero of our stories. May you get all the glory as we put you on as clothing in our daily way of life, new creation clothing, robes of righteousness all by grace. We are devoted to you, Jesus, the life giver, the one who's producing fruit continually through your gospel. We're devoted to you. Grow that devotion. Grow our affection. Grow our worship of you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Paul writes this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.